Hello and welcome to this episode of Mill Liberty. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. Uh, thank you for, for joining us today. I am very, very pleased and very excited to have uh, Jeffrey Tucker on with us today. Uh, Jeffrey is the Chief Liberty Officer of Liberty, or of Liberty.me and the Director of Content at the Foundation of uh, Economic Education and, if I might say so, a bow tie expert. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got a few, got a few, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, welcome. Well, it's nice to be here. Uh, it's a heck of a time to uh, choose to do this podcast. I mean, the, the world's in, in a state of uh, meltdown, upheaval, celebration, you know, maudlin, you know, uh, 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 funereal cat catastrophe. I mean, this election is like nothing I've seen in my uh, my entire lifetime. I must say. Yeah, it really is crazy. Were you expecting um, what happened Tuesday night? Because this uh, is really relatively fresh. Um, right, right, right. After. I, I can just tell you because I've not actually talked about this publicly. I mean, it's all it's all fresh, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but essentially, look. I mean. You have to go back, in my case, to, to June of 2015 when I heard Donald Trump speak for the first time. This was a year and a half ago. And I recognized immediately uh, the tenor tone approach uh, and policy ideas that he had as being basically a, a 21st century of, of interwar fascist ideology. Openly and aggressively um, anti-leftist and and against against the sort of neoliberal technocracy that's been sort of ruling the world for the last hundred years, but in favor of a kind of uh, a strongman nativism, uh, protectionist uh, rhetoric, which is strong hints of, of rationalism, and um, you know b b belligerent. Uh, you know, collectivist right-wing style, you know, basically national socialism. And I, I spotted it within the first 15 minutes of his speech because he started with immigration, he moved to trade protection. It's hard to remember this, but in June 2015, these weren't even controversies. Nobody, nobody questioned free trade. Uh, immigration was not a, a public controversy. All the polls showed that nobody cared anything about immigration. We're, we're happy with our immigrants. We love our multicultural societies. I mean, you know, so Donald Trump changed the terms of the debate by tapping into this sort of deep well uh, from history that uh, alarms people and gets people whipped up into a frenzy. And my strong sense was that in the libertarian community, we had been sort of intellectually unprepared for this. We've been so, partially because of our histories and our educations and everything, we've been so... Uh, alert to the danger from the left that we've never really considered the possibility that there was a, another danger from the right. And and it shocked me to realize just how strangely historically uh, naive and politically unsophisticated people were in the liberty community that they did not recognize this. I mean, a lot of people listened to this and said, well, he's got some good ideas and some bad ideas. It's like, no, folks, this represents... <laughs> A, a much, uh, you know, more profound threat. Uh, essentially, he's tapping into a deep vein here and recreating what was, in fact, one of the most successful political ideologies and one of those violent 
and destructive collectivist uh, paradigms of the 20th century. So I spent the last year and a half warning about this, right? <laughs> yeah. And 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 you know, in the course of it, you know, uh, we saw the rise of the alt right. They made me their enemy. They trolled me hard, like they trolled everybody who was uh, skeptical of Donald Trump. And it's it's been a rough uh, rough time. But um, I like every single other person with very few exceptions believed the betting polls i believed the regular polls that i thought it was a shoe for hillary clinton and that was okay with me i wasn't a fan of hers even if you know even if i briefly tried for ironic reasons to kind of you know be a fan, you know uh, but there's something that also mortified me about a Hillary Clinton victory. I didn't think it was going to be the end of the world. I figured it was just a continuation of the same crap we've been dealing with since World War II, you know? And right. and in the course of the evening, I, um, yeah, it gradually began to dawn on me that this dude was going to win. <laughs> and, and, and I really was not celebrating. I was distraught and shocked. And after it became clear that he would win, I just kind of sat down in a chair and I was surrounded by some friends and we all just began to talk about it. And gradually, um, we kind of came to a consensus, you know, of what was happening here. That this was not the, the triumph of, of Nazism. This was not a repeal of the Enlightenment. What this represented was a rejection of a kind of an arrogant, progressivist, technocratic, uh, sealed off, isolated uh, regime uh, in Washington that you know was constantly ruining people's lives through regulations and the, in particular the destruction of healthcare, and and that this is a kind of primal scream from from uh, the middle class in this country that said we've had enough, and here's the critical thing: I realized immediately there is something to celebrate here. This is not a bad thing entirely. It represents certain dangers, but to repudiate this this wicked worldview that that Hillary Clinton represents, doesn't fully embody, but she represents it, is is actually a bullish sign for liberty. So I chilled, right? I was like, okay, I can do this. I can I can go here. And then, you know, later that night, probably you like everybody else, we stayed up too late. I began to look at the commentary, you know, in the, in, in the press. And I had never seen such panic in my life. I mean, the, the, the histrionics were completely out of control. And it seemed to me to be a level of frenzy and, and, and uh, meltdown that, that I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even process. You know... Uh, you know, a guy like Paul Krugman was saying, "Look, this is a, uh, you know, this is this election proves the American people uh, want to restore racial hierarchies of blood and soil, you know, uh, dark ages, and 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 have turned their back on every aspect of of uh, modernity." I'm looking at this and going, "What? You know, that I'm not reading this at all. I mean, it struck me that this was just a referendum against." Um, a kind of a managerial uh, left-hand statism that people are sick of. In particular, it struck me that it was a, a devastating indictment of, uh, of Obamacare. This is not a heavily ideological election, actually, not despite all, what he no. says. <laughs> and so I found myself, you know, immediately blogging and writing for everybody to kind of calm down, that there's some good news here. Um, 
uh, and that the extreme left and the extreme right basically have an agenda and they want to manipulate the messaging of this election uh, in favor of some huge episodic upheaval in history for or against the white race, for or against the patriarchy. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. And partially this is because I just returned from a speaking trip in Wisconsin and Michigan. And I can tell you, sitting around the bars, meeting average people in those places, these people are not full of, their heads are not full of ideology. These are very practical people who saw that Clintonism, you know, the politics of Clintonism was not working out for their lives and they wanted to try something new. It's not complicated. So um, that's sort of where I stand right now. And, and I'm, I'm watching the rest of the world just like lose their minds. So I, I, I want to, I don't want to get like overly, I'm not celebrating this. I, I think, Obama, I think Trump represents a lot of dangers and I, and I, uh, he's not in any sense a libertarian, you know, and I, and I, I'm not even sure I could make a, a prognostication on, on what instincts of his are going to prevail. If you look at his economics program, it's not so terrible. If you look at his foreign policy program, it's got good aspects and bad aspects, but his authoritarianism, his desire to shut down free speech, I mean, all this stuff is very grim and very scary. So I don't know which one's going to win. We're just going to have to wait and see. But what I would like to see more than anything else is for people to set aside their ideologies and look realistically at what happened. That's all. So, so with that being said, do you think it is possible that... Moving forward, I know right now it's very emotional. It's very, you know, it's it's very heated right now, right after the results came in. But do you think that it's possible um, as a country, and then possibly as you know, uh, on on the liberty end of it, um, do you think it's possible that that people can come together and mend and and try to start standing and representing? Um, what they're for again and, and the kind of values that they actually believed in rather than just saying, well, we're against this side. So yeah. we're going to, so we're going to put up whoever is also against that side as well, but without really vetting what they're actually uh, believing in and what they're actually for. I don't, I don't actually, I'm not optimistic about that at all. I think this is the most divisive president in, in, uh, in, in history. I mean, you know, in terms of uh, the, the, the political shock, I, I can only compare it to the election of, of uh, 1800 when Jefferson mm-hmm. took over after the Alien Sedition Acts as a repudiation of the censorship of the Adams administration. I mean, that's the only comparison I can think of it. And the amount of, of hatred and loathing out there of Trump is so intense. And the worst, you know, I, this actually troubles me because, um, you know, <clears throat> you look at the sectors that are panicked about Trump. <clears throat> it's, it's the smartest, most finely educated cultural elites in this country. You know, it's all the top journalists, all the best academics, every, every university professor, um, uh, you know, all the, all the, the top art producers and musicians, and it's all the people that makes, you know, this country smart and beautiful and fabulous and creates our art and our ideas and our, writes our books. Uh, does the best journalism there on an absolute sense of alienation now from um, from uh, the 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 new I guess you could call it ruling class and I don't think that that's a good thing I, I really don't um, I'm I'm very concerned about it 
Um, and I don't, I don't know where it's going to end up. The other problem is I'm actually worried about uh, uh, unless Trump acts fast to put put aside some of this hatred and some of this rhetoric he's used in the in the past. Uh, I'm worried about uh, uh, actually I'm worried about violence, uh, violence ideologically oriented violence, which I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I mean, there's there's people on the left side of the political spectrum in this country who think that this is Hitler. And if he is Hitler, then anything is justified. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's that's a little bit on honestly on on both sides that um, there's there's a lot of division and a lot of hate and and. Unfortunately, instead of just coming about it uh, civilly, um, a lot of it is let's just go to the streets and you know duke it out with with the first person we can find. Oh, that's so so true. I think overnight, uh, I hadn't really even read the papers yet this today because I'm responsible for all the content at Fee and I'm scrambling. Uh, for messaging and uh, basically I'm trying to just like get everybody calmed down as best I can you know but um, apparently the headlines were that yeah there were highways shut down bridges shut down uh, there's there's protests in the streets and on campus I, I, I totally believe it um, and and I assume this is going to be an ongoing uh, thing I, I really uh, and I'm worried as libertarians I'm concerned that we could detach ourselves from this uh, from this, uh, from this struggle, because I, I don't want us, I don't want us to get tarred with with uh, with Trump, uh, but neither do I. I think it's a good idea for uh, libertarians to to adopt this sort of um, what I consider to be overwrought, at least for now, overwrought reaction. So, um, my sense that libertarians need to kind of like be the, you know, it's a kind of an opportunity for us if you think about it. Like we can actually, for once, be the calm, reasonable people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we've never been able to be. <laughs> We're the moderates, you know, sense <laughs> of things and point to the light of uh, human freedom. So never, maybe never it's thought. maybe it's an opportunity for us I, I really actually do think it's an opportunity for us I to... never thought that we'd be ever be considered the moderates in the room but <laughs> now's our opportunity I suppose yeah that's a heck of a thing for an anarchist to say but <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel it I feel like I'm I'm like the middle of the road right now I mean you know not in a sort of a squishy uh, way but in a sense that like it's true in a sense that our liberal vision of the world, you know, rejects the extremes of the left and right. And all we're really asking for is, is peace, um, uh, trade, uh, cooperation, um, and, uh, you know, the light of reason to, to, to rule our lives. I mean, that's really all we favor. It's not complicated. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's a chance for us to get our message out for once. I don't know. It could be very positive. Um... So, so talking, you know, that's that's a very good transition point. Um, I want to really talk about uh, since we already have the the kind of depressing part of this conversation out of the way, talking about the the negatives after the election. I really want to talk about uh, real practical solutions and where those solutions can be found. Um, and my first question is coming a, a, a bit of uh, a bit of from a, a cultural standpoint. How do you see that uh, liberty can be as culturally appealing to specifically to young people, to millennials, as say what uh, Bernie Sanders did this election? Because those, you know, even though he didn't win the nomination, 
those are really the two extremes of of this election cycle was Bernie was on one side and Trump was on the other side, yet they were both tapping into more or less a very similar um, ideological standpoint. And mm-hmm. how so how do we make uh, liberty as as culturally appealing specifically to that group of individuals um, as as that collectivist ideology? Well, I, you know, we have the advantage of the fact that our, our philosophy, our outlook on life is not actually threatening anybody with violence. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. <laughs> violence or force. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, all we're really asking for is 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 to give freedom and peace a chance. And I, to me, that is a beautiful message. Um, it doesn't have to be hard edged. It doesn't have to uh, you know, be, be about dumping books on people's heads. You know, it can be a very simple plea for um, for human dignity and and human rights. And and I, I find it, I guess these days, easier to make the case for libertarianism uh, or just for simple liberty than than I ever have before, because I think it's a very beautiful message. And and we have to persuade people to kind of let go of their pet project. Um, Whatever it is, you know, hating immigrants, hating black people, uh, hating white people, hating Wall Street, um, whatever the th- whatever the thing is, you know, keep keeping out, uh, you know, corn imports or, or sugar imports or you know whatever they're um, fearing China, whatever whatever the thing is, let it go, and uh, let's all just together, you know, come together in favor of of human rights and human liberties, and and that that's a very simple message, and I think it's very appealing. Because it connects with, with the way millennials live today. I mean, every single uh, uh, person raised in the internet age is used to curating their lives according to their own wishes and dreams. You know, uh, you download the apps you want, you play the games you want, you uh, connect with people in social media the way you want to. Your friend list is is unique to you, as unique as your thumbprint, really. And that's the world we inhabit. And, and and if we can make our politics and our physical world behave more like the digital world does already, I think we're going to find our way towards uh, solutions. Um, and so the, to me, that's a very appealing message. I mean, we're living in strange times because this is a time of great transition. I mean, we've still got a, a tremendous amount of the way the world works as a leftover from a pre-digital times. And yet, uh, the young people are have lived in a world that has just fundamentally changed from the way, the way anything worked in the 90s or any other time in the history of the world that preceded that. So, um, it's going to be tricky to navigate this this transition, but the transition will occur. And the reason that we know that it will occur is that technology has a much more longer lasting power and influence over the world than any kind of politics, you know? Once an invention comes out, uh, it, it, it persists into the future. It, it's not voted in, and it can't be, um, it, it can't be impeached, you know? <laughs> I mean, technology uh, stays with us, and, and it's, it's got a, last, a more lasting and pervasive impact in people's lives than any kind of uh, uh, political change. Uh, to me, that's a really great comfort, actually. Um, with that, with that being said, uh, you know, I, I see that we're kind of at a, a very interesting point in our history and it could go two of one of two ways, very, very authoritarian, very extreme, 
Um, or it could go completely the opposite way, where we've seen uh, freedom unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, and and that's really dependent upon how we react to this, because you know the market and the free market, while you know government certainly is is trying to to strangle it to death, uh, it's breaking through in ways that it never has before. Um, so where do you see that? Who specifically do you see is going to win out in that in that struggle? I, I don't think there's any question that the market is going to win. The market always wins. And I, I, I yeah, I just published this morning an article on um, on cannabis uh, legalization around the country, which I I think is just a fait accompli. We now have 28 states states that have decriminalized pot. You know, yeah, which would have been something nobody would have thought would have happened 10 years ago. And if you look back uh, 45 years ago at the Nixon's you know speech on the war on drugs. And this is the man who swore that he was going to drive all pot out of this country. It had completely that. the opposite effect on it. It had the completely opposite effect. So and it's an illustration. The government doesn't get its way. Mm-hmm. Actually, a free people, when they want to be free, are going to get their freedom one way or the other. It may take time. There's going to be a lot of costs involved, a uh, bumpy transition, but eventually we're going to win out. And I I, I feel like what, what's happened to, to decriminalization of, of, of marijuana in this country is going to happen to every single other area of life. We're just going to gradually get more and more freedom. Fits and starts, but we're going to get it. And I, I think these, these government efforts, they can slow us down, um, but they can't stop us. Uh, There's just no turning back at this point, and there's no going back. I mean, I, I laugh. You know, I mean, I'm sure you watch the debates and everything. I mean, you know, you know, it's very strange to hear these, these old people arguing about what they what kind of world they want to live in because they're arguing about what kind of past they want to restore but the past is not restorable you know there will never be the 1950s again there will never be the 1980s there will never be the 1990s i mean that this these are ages gone by and their whole imagination is shaped by this by a world that we no longer live in globalization is a fact of life digitization is a reality choice empowerment of, of individuals, uh, uh, life curation according to uh, digital choices is, is just where we are right now. And that is incompatible with the political rule of life that is imagined as possible by both the left and the right. And I, I, I think their visions are not realizable. They, you know, politicians and partisans of the state always imagine that they can cause the world to be a certain way if you give them an, the, enough smart people with enough resources and enough power they can do anything but actually all of modern experience shows us that that is absolutely untrue they can fight and fight and fight and struggle and spend and put people in jail and, and conk people in the head and tase everybody and you know they can just they can keep doing this stuff all they're going to do is create a reaction that's uh, going to prove their plans uh, unsustainable. So they can—they're—they're they're just wasting their time. It's—it's uh, it's a failed project. And I would say this is true for, for every aspect of the modern state, whether it's, you know, Obamacare and the welfare state and the regulatory state that everybody's getting on everybody's nerves, or the warfare state, which has just caused such havoc all over uh, the region of the Middle East and unleashed ISIS. I mean. Or whether it's schooling, or you name it, every area of life that the government touches, it's essentially screwed up, and the markets are desperately trying to fix, uh, fix, correct it, and fix it. 
Um, it's been a very long time since the government did anything that was impressive. You know, I mean, you have to kind of go back a <laughs> yeah. long way. And, and if you think about it, I mean, our grandparents lived in an age where government did all kind of stuff that on the surface of it seemed kind of amazing. Very seemingly. Yeah, seemingly. Oh, well, well, you know, we drove, we drove uh, uh, the Nazis uh, into the We beat the Nazis. You know, the, we, we won World War II and drove fascism back. We, um, we built an interstate highway system that connected the country. We t- put a man on the moon, you know, and so on, right? right? This is the kind of things that government did that seemed to be rather awesome. Well, that kind of, that world began to die sometime uh, uh, in the 1970s. And, and leaving aside the 1980s, uh, well, you know, where, you know, the, the, the Cold War basically came, you know, it, it went away without anybody intending it to. But I think we've seen a long run decline in the, in the capacity of government projects to sort of fire up the public imagination. It's just not doing anything people love anymore. Mm-hmm. People en- en- encounter government, you know, at the, at the airports and they hate the TSA. They encounter the DMV. They pay their taxes every year. You know, they're, they're shelling out a gazillion dollars for Social Security that they know, they know they're not going to get. Their public schools pretty much suck, and they know it. And, you know, it's like all of our experience with government these days is is largely negative. And this is a change. You know, I mean, as I say, uh, our grandparents, you know, they they paid not that much in taxes, and they seem to get a lot of benefit out of government. Right. But now right. we're paying a lot in taxes and getting very little, if any, benefit out of the government. You know, the, we associate the government with the blue lights in, in, the, in our rear view, in our in our rear windows, and assume that we're going to be stopped for for a tail light out, and they're going to find you know the fleck of pot in our pocket. We're going to put away the, as a felon or something. I mean, everybody's ter- terrified of the state yeah, just, these yeah, days. Ridiculous, ridiculous things. And honestly, I, I think that. Um, it would have happened a lot sooner if if it really wasn't delayed in part during during the Great Depression by a lot of the things that FDR did, um, because uh, if you know if I know you're an Austrian and as am I and and we understand that markets rebound all the time it it doesn't need government to heal itself right um, and and if it wasn't for that I think that we would have been not only uh, at this part that we're at right now, a lot sooner. Um, but oh, you mean, you mean uh, the digital age and the technology technology that we're experiencing right now? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's probably right. Actually, I mean, it's interesting to consider h- how much government actually forestalled this. Actually, I think you're empirically absolutely correct. I mean, you think about it. Um, I mean, how much did regulation of transportation, trucking, energy, and telecommunications set back? Uh, uh, set us back, you know. I mean that 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 whole world persisted from World War II all the way up until essentially the late 1970s, you know. Mm-hmm. And then and then uh, Jimmy Carter almost inadvertently, you know, signs a series of legislation that deregulated all these things right. and created an explosion, a technological explosion, telecommunications and transportation uh, you know with with airlines and you name it every area of life was 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 gradually transformed thanks to you know really if you think about it just a handful of deregulatory uh, events and then in 1995 
again, almost inadvertently, the internet was turned over from government ownership to largely privately owned. And, and that's um, when it exploded in, and in, that was in when, popularity. Mm-hmm. That's when we saw the web browser invented and and there's been no turning back ever since then. You know, we don't even know what it would be like to live in the in the world that I grew up in where I mean, you never none of us you never knew anything. I mean, you you couldn't contact anybody unless you had a huge book with yellow with white pages and yellow pages sitting in yeah. a drawer in your kitchen. I mean, phone books, Jesus. That was the way you contacted people was through a freaking phone book. <laughs> Uh, the only you had three television stations, you know, um, and uh, and if you wanted to do any research, it is, which was another way of saying know something, you had to go to a library and dig through a bunch of dusty old books, and it took you forever. And you would I mean, essentially, essentially, the world lived in darkness. I mean, by comparison today, it was a dark, dreary, dingy, disgusting time compared to now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's honestly really incredible because, like you said, um, you know, just not too long ago we would have been looking each other up in a phone book, and now here we are uh, on Skype of all things talking to each other without any government help whatsoever. Right. This is completely a success of the marketplace without any oh. government help. And by the way, you know, people don't appreciate this, but most of these fabulous technologies. And and nowadays we we have the the possibility of communicating on on instant video, uh, not with just the, just each other, but spreading this all over the planet instantly for for universal access. And we can do this for for free. I mean, not not only are we not charged for it, but we have people begging us to use their services. Yeah. You know, whether it's 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 uh, you know, Facebook audio video or or I think now Snapchat has has uh, an audio video uh, function in, in it uh, too and there's probably you know, countless other technologies and they're invented and and instead of charging us for it, you know, they they come to us begging us to use it. I mean, that is that is just something that you know, the opponents of capitalism never imagined. They always thought that world capitalism would be the world in which the rich had all the cool stuff because they could afford it and the poor were ground into the that, dust. That logic's just completely flipped over its head just by, you know, just the simple just the simple things like Facebook and things that you mentioned. It's completely flipped on its head, the, the arguments that only the rich will prosper from, from capitalism. Right. And that's, and that's shown all throughout the world with poverty, uh, global poverty, at an all-time low now. Uh, all throughout the world in places that really, really need it. And that's only yeah. because of, of the success of the marketplace. Yeah, the success of the marketplace, global trade, technology. It was not the World Bank that that brought this result about. It wasn't the IMF. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any government policy. It's 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 the absence of government that is making the world a more wonderful place. And, and that is just so clear uh, to everybody. That, I mean, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned Bernie Sanders earlier, and he weirdly ran as a socialist, right? But he didn't, but hardly anything he said was very socialist in a traditional sense. I mean, he was just basically against, uh, you know, crony capitalism and, you know, bailouts and, and that sort of thing. I mean, he had an annoying sort of anti-rich, you know, sort of thing going, but, but mostly he didn't propose the nationalization of industry, you know? He wasn't actually pushing for the collectivization of the family or whatever, you know. The, you know, um, and actually, 
a lot of his program was kind of strangely libertarian at times. So, so I, yeah, parts I, of it, yeah. Yeah, so I just don't think that old world of statism uh, really has any practical resonance anymore. We, we, we've kind of turned to that point in history. Um, you know, I'm not, I, but Jen, I don't want to be like, uh, to pretend as if it's just baked into the cake here. I mean, I, there's always new forms of statism. You know, I think Trump, in a, in a weird way, Trump represents something new mm-hmm. uh, we've never seen before. Um, I'm particularly concerned about things like the use of libel laws to shut down free speech. I mean, I'm this is... I'm concerned about that, too. Yeah, 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 that's a very weird uh, kind of twist. Um, it's this sort of right, right-wing right authoritarianism that we're, we're just, you know, hardly anybody alive has any experience with this. Uh, by the way, I think we experienced a little bit of this with uh, Richard Nixon in the early 1970s, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, um, the arrest of draft dodgers and, you know, the censorship and the using of a regulatory state to punish his political en- enemies and the drug war and all this kind of nonsense. Uh, so he was pretty bad. Uh, we somehow survived that. I, I would be very surprised to see Trump become as bad as as uh, Nixon, although I guess I guess wouldn't rule it out. But, you know, look, we have huge forces of resistance alive in the world today, you know, and I think that the uh, the the great example of of pot decriminalization is is you know illustrates the point. Essentially, if people are determined to be free and to live free, there's nothing the state can do to prevent them from doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find that ever since that people really began um, living like free men and women, really since around the the time of the enlightenment and the the american revolution that government has seemingly been playing catch-up like like every time that that uh that the market and and liberty puts up something that's saying we're going to make you free um they're two steps ahead of government saying no we're going to regulate this or we're going to we're going to censor this and every time it's it they they're trying to evolve and government just can't seemingly catch up quick enough at this point anymore. Yeah, at this point, it's true. I mean, for large part of the 20th century, uh, these two forces you, you mentioned, one, the market and its technological innovations, and then the other being government and its regulatory um, uh, and taxing sort of powers, they really ran parallel, you know, at basically the same pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the internet came along, uh, the innovations have just gone so you know light years ahead of of government regulations at this point. I mean, it's fascinating um, actually because uh, the pace is, is is quickening so so much that the regulators themselves, who after all in the end are human beings, can't even understand what they're regulating anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, I look at something like 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 Bitcoin, you know, which is this sort of uh, uh, pseudonymous peer-to-peer currency that works without any financial intermediation and lives entirely on the internet, and is a global technology that's you know came about through the, through the market and exists only uh, and is a valuable service, good and service only because of the market, and the regulators are like, well, okay, um, that's weird, but let's let's fit it into our financial regulations. And then Bitcoiners are trying to explain to Treasury Department officials and Federal Reserve officials, I'm sorry, but that's not going to work. It's not just that we don't want it. It's not possible to have know your customer rules in the Bitcoin space, for example. I mean, these these kinds of things are, 
it just doesn't work. The old regulatory state applies to the world of the 1970s, 1980s, and 90s. It doesn't apply in the 21st century. Or I think of things like patents. Okay, you're going to try to enforce your patent in a world of 3D printing? Where yeah. I can go to any, any website in the world, download, download a plan for anything from a ballpoint pen to a building, and print it out? Uh, you're going to try to enforce patents in that world? Forget it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just not viable anymore. So, so Jeffrey, tell me, um, tell me. I, I want to talk to you about your go-to arguments and these three uh, specific categories. Tell me, when you're talking to somebody, say that's opposing uh, on opposing views of you, um, but seems to be reasonable enough to at least listen and hear you out. What's your go-to argument for liberty, for private enterprise, and for individualism? Well, wow, those are big topics. I, you know, I more and more rely on um, aesthetic and practical arguments rather than these weird. I mean, I shouldn't say weird, but like I try to avoid uh, arguments around the non-aggression principle as a as a moral doctrine, just because I'm not sure that they're persuasive. I'm not sure that they really. I think they're a little too question begging. And ultimately, I, what I've learned over the course of you know uh, years of journalism and advocacy is that people are unpersuaded about anything unless they believe it can work in practice. So, uh, in all these areas, I try to highlight uh, <clears throat> practical ways in which the market is making the world a better better place. Um, and I always draw an attention to them. I mean, you mentioned um, free enterprise and private ownership. Um, I love telling people the story of, of of what happened to Atlanta, and where are you located, by the way? Ohio. Ohio. Mm-hmm. So I live in Atlanta, and the core of the city used to be a steel mill that was taken over by public housing, until the public housing became just infested with crime and and you know poverty, and it was a disaster, and they tore it down. Nobody knew what to do. It was really the core of the city, and the the. You know, decades of, of of policy calamity led uh, city elders to just throw up their hands and say, "We don't know what to do with this place." So they sold it to a private uh, developer um, who had developed uh, some strip malls up and down the East Coast. He bought it, and the city told him, "Look, you can you can have this, but we're not going to build or maintain your streets. We're not going to provide you policing because we can't afford to." Um, I just turned up the volume a little bit. Is that too high? No, you're fine. Okay, and. And and he said, great, you know. So so he built all the private streets. He dug deep into 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 the core of the earth there and and put uh, parking in place, uh, uh, contracted out all the policing of the community, uh, zoned it. Uh, the city agreed to let it be zoned uh, partially uh, commercial and, and partially residential, and the result is a free immigrant, free a community, free migration. You don't have to be a member of it. You drive there. It's beautiful, peaceful prosperous, productive, multicultural, and it works. And it works without government. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always invite anybody to come to Atlanta and go visit Atlantic Station and tell me what they find objectionable about it. Because this is something the city didn't build. It's entirely private. Uh, Security is t- entirely private. And it's, it's spontaneous order. And it works. And it's beautiful. So my proposal is pretty simple. Let's expand this experiment out. You know, to the whole city, mm-hmm. to the whole state, to the whole country, to the whole world. I, I think I think that's that's a very compelling uh, point. Um, 
on on the th- the thing about limiting government and cutting cutting government or, or or you know sometimes people are afraid of the insecurity of the market like it doesn't give them enough security um or that it's too chaotic or something like that i always point to the example of the of the app economy this is something that was never created by legislation you know um and nobody in, you know caused it you know built it cause it to come exist it would just gradually emerged through the spontaneous actions of entrepreneurs and uh, technicians and consumers all cooperating together on a global basis. And we created a beautiful world that nowadays is, is uh, regulating the whole of our lives. You know, we're, we're, we're able to track our, our, our health. Uh, it's, it's, our, it's our alarm clocks. It's our tools for navigating this, uh, the city. It's our, it's our way of, of rating services. I mean, this is a self-regulating world without any legislation governing that, you know? And if, and if, I guess my point is that if it works so well in this realm that's so important to our lives now, they could work in, in other areas of life too. Um, and on individualism, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of confusion about this term. Uh, people sometimes think that libertarians advocate what, what sometimes you, you see online called atomistic individualism. Uh, this is a ridiculous caricature of what we believe. If you go back to the Scottish Enlightenment, read the works of Adam Smith. I mean, the whole of our tradition has been about community and where it comes from and, and how much we as individuals depend on our interactions with others for the quality of our lives. And that's, that's very much central to the liberal worldview. We we're, we're really are about community. And we're about universal rights and human dignity and, and, and the way in which markets bring people together despite differences in religion, race, ability, sex, gender identity, you name it. All those things that divide us politically, the market um, erases and brings us together based on uh, a common interest in, in flourishing. So I, I, that's how I describe markets. That's how I describe a, a world of liberty, is a, a world of togetherness, cooperation, uh, non-discrimination, and uh, a system that helps us find value in other people and allows other people to find value in us. To me, that's, that's a very compelling aesthetic uh, and, and and a very p- sort of persuasive vision of what liberty looks like. It's a little different from "Don't Tread on Me," right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's I think it's very powerful, and it's something I think that that um, that taps into people's you know highest aspirations for what a human community can look like. Mm-hmm. The state doesn't bring that about. It's only uh, only voluntary a voluntary behavior that does. Yeah, and and I really like that too because. Um, yeah, I was as I was telling you before we uh, went live. Uh, that's kind of a little bit uh, the purpose of this program. That of what I'm trying to do is to create this community of liberty lovers, and that seemingly is a little bit oxymoronic to people who don't quite understand that. Because you know, how can an individual, how can individualism, uh, be equal to uh, a community? But it really fleshes itself out through the marketplace and through uh, these ideas and principles of of just uh, self ownership, and that in and of itself tends to help a community better. 
Well, I think you've said something very powerful, and I, I sometimes get, I'm really struck by that because one of the great insights of liberalism from the, uh, again, the late Middle Ages all the way up to the Scottish Enlightenment and following was that the interest of the individual and the interest of the community are not opposed, mm -hmm. that they can go together. You can pursue your own interests while benefiting others around you because if we don't live in a zero-sum world, we can experience gains from trade. That is, this, that is the core of the discovery that we we made essentially in right. the in, in the high middle ages and late middle ages and um with every bit of work on our intellectual tradition has been fleshing that inside out but it's very difficult for people to understand you know people constantly want to uh bring into conflict the interest of the individual and the interest of the community you know so you've got you know, whether it's Clinton or Obama and, you know, that whole side of the sort of left to center managerial status uh, spectrum, always opposing the interests of, of your interests as opposed to the community. They're asking you to sacrifice for the sake of others. For the greater good, you know? right. Yeah. And, and then, so, I, you know, for libertarians, uh, we need to resist, you know, just making a mistake and flipping this narrative our head and saying, Screw the community, I'm going to pursue my own interest. Okay, so that I don't think that's where we need to be going. We really need to say, look, these are not opposed to each other. And it's the same right, message right. That, that David Hume you know, was delivering uh, so long ago, but, uh, but it has to be reasserted and re-explained in every generation. Uh, you can pursue your good and also achieve the good of others, too. These are not opposed to each other. Yeah, I, I, I tend to tell people that um, being good to your fellow man is good business. It's good for business. Nobody yeah. really likes to to work for the you know the the boss that just keeps you over and over and over hours on end. They want to go. The marketplace will provide for that. They want to go for the boss um, that's going to be good to you. That's going to make sure that your well being is is in their best interest. And and that's just that's just the nature of the free market, and that's the nature of of human individual liberty is that. By default, you are good to your fellow man. Well, you have to be because that's and the market rewards that right, and of punishes and, re, and punishes uh, selfishness and greediness and uh, if you behave in a way that's contrary to uh, to the rights uh, and dignity of others, you're not going to get very far in a, in a free market. Actually, of course, yeah, it's it's the state that enables us to be uh, wicked uh, toward each other. I mean, I, I don't think that somehow liberalism creates a perfect world, but it, it, the beautiful thing about it is that it, it establishes an opportunity for us to improve and, and, and creates systems that are adaptable according to changing values of the community and to new discoveries of information. Um, that's the most important thing is to have a world of ongoing experimentation. If you if you lock it down with with regulations and taxes and and all sorts of systems designed by elites that are imposed on society, it's really, uh, uh, it, it disables that experimentation that's essential to freedom. It's, it's like in the Lego movie where the guy wanted to glue down all the pieces, you know? <laughs> that's, that's a that, that glues us down, you know? Yeah. Um, so as we're coming uh, closer to a close here, Tell me, uh, I, I want to cover two big things before we before we close out. Uh, tell me, 
specifically on involvement and and individual uh, activism, I suppose. What uh, organizations or what routes uh, would you recommend taking to make these ideas uh, that we've been talking about uh, more common in in society as a whole? And then I I want to cover a little bit about um, you specifically, your personally, uh, what your why is. And I think that's very important uh, conversation that we as a as a people need to be having moving forward is what it is that that drives us so that we understand that so we don't make these kind of mistakes um, like what we had this election with Trump versus Clinton where you're really picking uh, if, if you believe that it's a binary choice which uh, obviously it's not but a uh, majority of Americans do they're picking which ones they like uh, less and and how do we get around that so, so first, uh, first, just tell me about what organizations you see or or okay. what publications well, uh, do you, possible. Do you know, I, I, I guess about three years ago, I, I built this community called Liberty Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was designed to distribute uh, literature and bring people together as a community. I was very thrilled that it was eventually. Um, it was started as a as a, a for profit venture, and it was sold to an, a non profit education. Uh, foundation called Free the People, which so now it's completely free to everybody to join. And I think it's a very beautiful community. We have arguments, we have debates, but <clears throat> ultimately everybody is uh, very uh, polite and kind to each other. We learn from each other. Um, you know, and after having uh, built that, I moved over here to, I was very pleased to be hired by the Foundation for Economic Education, which is an organization started in 1946 with a liberal vision of the world. It was, you know, a generation, Hayek, Leonard Reed, others, Ayn Rand, Mises were um, very concerned about uh, the statism of the world and wanted to highlight another vision. And FEE has been around 70 years now. And... And when they hired me, it was the aspiration that as a venue, it would become a, a vehicle for not so much for policy change or even even uh, academic uh, involvement, but rather fundamental cultural change to make the ideas of liberty familiar and credible among a rising generation. And that's been sort of my task. Mm-hmm. And we've built a very, very beautiful and powerful and extensive digital space for opinion. And we're, 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 the, the traffic has just been extraordinary. We're getting, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 uh, visitors per day. You know, uh, we've had months that, are, that exceed a million different, uh, a million people per month uh, wow. coming to the website. Um, and we try to keep the tone upbeat and positive and credible and classy and sophisticated. I, I, look, at, I look at places like The Atlantic, Slate, Salon, New Yorker, mm-hmm. and some of these other venues. And they all come from a sort of a, a progressive outlook, you know, liberal, uh, le- left liberal progressivism and mildly statist and i'm i'm looking at it and it's like how did we let this happen to us that the most trafficked part of the web you know are, are, are pushing values that that are contrary to human liberty and and my answer to that is we just haven't done a very good job we've we've just kind of sucked at the internet as crazy as that sounds we just kind of let we let them creep up on us and we were unable to create any venues that that were as good so i really set out 
to make fee you know a close competitor in this realm and i don't mean just like sticking with liberty people you know or they are already convinced i mean like a real venue that 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 you could feel a pride in sharing with anybody you know and say this is an awesome article this is a wonderful website get on the email list you're going to learn things they're going to benefit you personally and draw people into a much deeper relationship with human liberty and so that's what i've set out to do and it's awesome for me because now fee is easily like hands down the dominant uh freedom oriented um uh, piece of real estate on the entire World Wide Web on a global basis. Second only to Reason, but I mean, Reason is designed for just libertarians, basically. Fee is, is uh, specifically designed for everybody, and so we're just we're we're really doing it. And I think this is I think this is the way forward um, for our ideas. We have to we have to learn to speak with a radical vision to. Uh, but with a mainstream uh, voice, uh, you know that, and that's tough to achieve, and that requires confidence in what we believe in, and a willingness to stick our necks out and say, uh, "These are the principles we adhere to, and, and here they are." And and I think we've done a, a beautiful job at that. We try to stay really practical. We run a lot of articles on schooling, on entrepreneurship, on parenting, just sort of life management. Uh, try, trying to alert people to the dangers of ideological fanaticism on the left and the right. This is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, make good on on the vision of the founders of the organization, and 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 create a credible voice for for authentic love of liberty. Uh, so I'm very proud of what we're doing. So I would encourage anybody who's listening today to check us out, get on the email list, and uh, cheer us on. Uh, contributions always welcome. As for what as for what fires me up as an individual, I mean, when I was in college, I fell in love with this body of ideas. I, I just did. Uh, I had always been curious about what makes the world tick, uh, what makes life worth living. You know, uh, why do people go about their business every day without trying to understand the world around them and what makes it wonderful? When I discovered this body of ideas. Um, uh, particularly within the writings of, uh, of, of Ludovic Mises, um, it just, you know, it enraptured me. It's like I fell in love, and it was a permanent, lifetime, dedicated love. <laughs> so that's, that's what gets me up. Kind, right? Yeah, and uh, I've never lost my passion for it. I'm, I'm, I never lose my curiosity for it or learning more about it. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. So, um, and I'm always in the state of, of learning, and I, I, I see myself as facilitating uh, an adventure for other people, too, and that adventure just, just never stops. You know, what should libertarians do going forward? I think it's different for everybody, and I, I don't think there's any one path uh, to victory. I think politics can play a role. It's obviously not uh, the, the only role or even the, the best uh, solution to our to our problems, I think we need to be working in, in all realms: technology, and culture, and entrepreneurship, and education. Um, politics is, may, may, is part of that, but it's it's very much downstream, uh, I would say, from culture. And uh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing at Fee. Uh, and there's plenty. There's so much work for us to do. You know, people are so despairing about the politics of our time. I think we need to look at it as an opportunity. Um, an educational opportunity. People are paying attention now. We have to make compelling arguments, get out there, be public about it, don't be shy, 
and and really hold up the light of liberty for the for a new generation. It's fantastic. Um, Jeffrey, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Um, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. We have a lot of people excited to, to, to listen today to what you have to say. Um, we'll be sure to tweet out the, the, uh, the Twitter handle with, with uh, the Foundation for Economic uh, Education and for okay. Liberty.me and for you as well if you want to give out those Twitter handles. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's Fee Online and uh, is the Twitter handle and liberty.dot liberty.me for for Liberty Me. So and I'm Jeffrey A. Tucker. Um, I'd for a follow. So I'll be sure and retweet you and let's get the, let's get this interview out there. Absolutely. Thank you let's, so much for having me. Um, thank you very much, Jeffrey. And next week you want to uh, uh, certainly uh, be listening next week because next week we're going to be having uh, our Thanksgiving episode about you know a week before Thanksgiving because I'm going to be taking that week off and um, we're going to be covering the the tragedy of the commons and some of the the lessons that we can uh, take from that um, but until then be sure to follow me uh, at Caleb Franz and be sure to follow me Liberty at me Liberty and Outset Magazine uh, at Outset Network and we'll see you then Thanks so much, Kevin.